Continuing to listen to the Crusades through Muslim eyes, which can be accessed at islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. Despite the horrific scenes, one man managed to keep his sanity intact. The indefatigable Shams al-Dawla gathered a small group of fighters and headed for the citadel. They barricaded themselves inside and fought off repeated attacks by the converging crusaders. The leading Frankish commander, a gigantic man with long, flowing blonde hair named Bohemond of Taranto, was wounded in one of these attacks. He sent Shams a message, asking him to abandon the citadel in return for safe conduct, but the young man was not to be fooled. The citadel was stocked with enough food and sharp arrows to last months, and the crusaders would lose thousands if they tried to take the citadel by force. Their determination paid off. The crusaders gave up and left the citadel alone. Then, only three days after the fall of Antioch, Carbuga's army appeared on the horizon. For the remaining Muslims holed up in the citadel, the sight was too much to bear. They wept, prayed, and shouted, Allah is great. The crusaders closed the gates of Antioch. The besiegers had become besieged. Karbuga's army had swelled in numbers. As soon as he crossed into Syrian territory, Dukak and other princes joined with their forces. This Muslim army was truly massive. The crusaders probably hadn't seen a larger army before, and now that they were besieged themselves, with no food and no prospect of pillaging neighboring lands for supplies, they were facing annihilation. And that was certainly what should have happened. Except that the Muslim army was majestic in appearance only. Dukak was hard at work, whispering evil thoughts about Karbuga into the ears of the emirs. If Karbuga was to defeat the Crusaders, then he would set himself up as a savior of sorts, and no Syrian city would escape his rule. Compared to that scenario, the Franks were a lesser problem. They were simply retaking what had previously been a Christian city anyway. The whispering campaign gained momentum, and Karbuga felt he was losing control of his troops. In his anxious desperation, he proposed a truce with the Crusaders. This move completely demolished his credibility with his own troops on the one hand and emboldened the Franks on the other. The crusaders charged without even responding to his offer. Karbuga unleashed a wave of cavalry archers in retaliation, but Dukak and those who had been influenced withdrew at this decisive moment. Karbuka realized that he was isolated. He ordered a retreat. The army from Mosul almost fled the scene in total humiliation. Thus, the great Muslim army disintegrated into pieces without a battle. The Christians were confused at the sight. There had been no battle to warrant this kind of retreat. Surely this must be a trick. So they decided not to pursue. Prior to Antioch, the Muslim world was clinging to the hope that a united army may rise to face the challenge of the crusader invasion. Now this hope was completely destroyed paving the way for the crusaders to advance unchecked to their ultimate destination, 
Jerusalem. Chapter 5 Mixed Fortunes on the Road to Jerusalem If the debacle at Dorylium spread fear throughout Muslim lands, Antioch created mass hysteria, particularly on the path from Antioch to Jerusalem. Many left their cities and towns to go further east, while others took shelter in the woods. Some even sought refuge in abandoned castles and fortresses. The town of Ma'ara was three days' march southeast of Antioch. It was populated by simple farmers and had only an urban militia consisting of several hundred young men with no military experience. It wasn't long after the fall of Antioch that Ma'ara found itself surrounded by thousands of crusaders. For two intense weeks, the urban militia battled courageously to keep the Christians at bay. They even went as far as to hurl beehives down onto the invaders. The Franks countered by building wooden turrets as high as the city walls. The defenders panicked. Some took it upon themselves to retreat from the outer walls and barricade themselves in tall buildings, thinking this made better sense. Others did the same. Soon, the outer perimeter was left completely unguarded. And yet, the crusaders did not dare to enter the city. Some of the more prominent personalities contacted Bohemond, now known as the Master of Antioch. He promised to spare the lives of the people if they stopped fighting and withdrew from certain defensive positions. In their desperation, the Muslims of Ma'ara put their trust in Bohemond's word. They gathered in their houses and cellars, waiting all night in fear. The crusaders arrived at dawn. What happened next cannot be captured in words. For three days, there was pure carnage. The crusaders put the whole town to the sword, and then they cooked the flesh of the Muslim adults and children, and then devoured them. In the words of Rudolf of Cayenne, in Ma'ara, our troops boiled pagan adults in cooking pots. They impaled children on spits and devoured them grilled. These terrifying images were long preserved in poems and oral traditions. The image of the crusader was more beast-like than human. At least one city managed to escape the fate of Ma'ara. When the peasants of Hisnel Akrad were surrounded by crusaders, they released their herd of livestock. The starving Franks chased the animals. In the confusion, the peasants managed to escape. The rest of the cities en route to Jerusalem paid homage to the Christians rather than resisting them. Delegations from Tripoli, Shazar, Homs, Beirut, Tyre, and Acre showered the Christians with gold and gifts. Some even bestowed horses on them so that they could make up for the ones they lost in warfare. Such was the fragmented state of the Muslims that they all but laid the red carpet for the Franks on the way to Jerusalem. 
Of all the delegations that showered gifts on the Crusaders, the most generous came from Tripoli. This city was enjoying an age of peace and prosperity that was the envy of its neighbors. The pride of the city was the enormous Dar al-Ilm, or House of Knowledge, containing over 100,000 volumes, one of the largest collections of its time. The city was ringed with fields of olives, caribs, and sugar cane. Its ports were bustling with activity. The leader of Tripoli invited the Crusaders to come to Tripoli to hear his proposal for an alliance. This was a monumental error, as the Crusaders had no intention of making treaties and alliances. When the Crusaders arrived, they were amazed at the gardens, the palace, the port, and perhaps most of all, the goldsmith's market. They responded to his proposal by laying siege to Arca, the second-largest principality of Tripoli. The Cadi was stunned. The specter of Antioch and Maara haunted his thoughts. He saw himself in the shoes of the hapless Yakisian, hurtling to a shameful death. Tripoli began to stockpile provisions in preparation for a long siege. There was no telling how long Arca would hold out. One month slipped by, then two, and then three. The Crusaders hadn't come yet. Somehow, Arca was managing to hold out against the Crusaders. How was this possible? Arca walls were no more solid than any of the other, much more important cities the Crusaders had conquered. The secret to Arca's real strength was in the mindset of its defenders. From the very first moment of the battle, the people of Arca were convinced that if even a single breach in the wall was opened, they would be slaughtered like their brethren in Antioch and Maara. So they kept watch, day and night, repelling attempt after attempt, until the invaders simply became frustrated. In May of 1099, after almost four months of besieging Arca, the crusaders slid away, hanging their heads in shame. Chapter 6 The Night is Darkest Before the Dawn Relations between the Sunnis and the Shiites had been hostile for as long as anyone could remember. The Shiite Fatimids ruled over the rich and abundant state of Egypt. From there, they plotted and planned with their friends, the Byzantine Christians, to bring down the Sunni Turks that ruled over much of the Middle East. When the Crusaders first arrived from Constantinople, the Fatimids rubbed their hands in glee. They believed these were the reinforcements for the Christian Byzantine Empire. And so, an opportunity had come knocking on their door. Now they would be able to take revenge on the Seljuk Turks and retake Damascus and Jerusalem. In fact, as the Crusaders raped and pillaged their way through Syria and the greater Middle East, the Fatimids were sending emissaries bearing gifts and proposals, dividing up the Sunni Empire between themselves and the Christians. The Fatimids clearly wanted Jerusalem back, but it was on this point they found the Crusaders evasive. Their behavior was somewhat curious. But there was no time to lose. Jerusalem was not negotiable. After the fall of Antioch, the Egyptians laid siege to Jerusalem. In a matter of a few months, they took over the city and installed their own garrison commanded by Iftikhar al-Dawla. And then came a stunning admission from the Byzantine emperor himself. The crusaders were not under his control. In fact, more precisely, they were out of control. There was nothing he could do to influence them. 
It wasn't long before the Crusaders arrived at the outskirts of Jerusalem. The Shiite general had prepared for a long siege, but his resistance was short-lived. The Crusaders managed to penetrate Jerusalem through the Jewish quarter and had already begun to massacre its inhabitants. Before long, the Fatimids were surrounded, but just as all hope had been lost for the Shiite soldiers, the Crusaders sent a messenger promising safe passage out of Jerusalem if they surrendered. Iftikhar al-Dawla capitulated, despite knowing full well the Crusaders were not in the habit of keeping their promises. As soon as the Fatimids left, the population of the city was massacred. The horrific atrocities they committed have already been recounted. After the fall of Jerusalem, the Christian crusaders continued on the warpath to claim as much territory as possible from the fragmented Muslim nation. The Muslim princes were much more interested in maintaining control over their own principalities, and some even rejoiced at watching their rival Muslim leaders fall at the hands of the Franks. Within a few years, the crusaders managed to capture many coastal cities. In most cases, the people of these cities and towns were brutally put to the sword. The cities of Haifa, Jaffa, Accra, Beirut, Saida, and Tripoli were lost. However, the Crusaders suffered some serious setbacks as well. Khalij Arslan, now older and more experienced, and Danishman the Wise united once again to crush Crusader armies in the north in three successive battles. The rulers of Mosul and Haran also put aside their differences to prevent Frankish attempts at taking Baghdad. Their unified force dealt such a humiliating defeat to the Crusaders that Bohemond of Antioch sailed back to Europe, never to be seen in Muslim lands again. But by 1100, only four years after the initial invasion of Muslim lands, the Crusaders consolidated much of their territory and divided it into four provinces. These were the counties of Edessa, Antioch, Tripoli, and the Kingdom of Jerusalem. The Crusaders had formed a string of Christian nation-states within the Muslim heartland. And within these lands was born the most fanatical and bloodthirsty strain of crusader the Muslims had ever seen. In the Templar and Hospitaller Knights was the strict discipline and austerity of monks, combined with the belligerent mentality of robber barons. Their terrifying mixture of religious fanaticism and brutality singled them out for disdain by even the most diplomatic and tolerant Muslim leader. The Muslims looked toward Damascus, Aleppo, and Baghdad for leadership in these tragic times, but their Muslim leaders washed their hands of any responsibility. They were living in their own worlds, detached and afraid to defend even their own territories, let alone launch a counteroffensive. Ridwan of Aleppo agreed to pay large sums of gold as a tribute to the Franks of Antioch. So belittled was he that he placed a large cross on the main mosque of Aleppo to please his Frankish lords. The princes had been orchestrating conspiracies against each other for so long that none of them could trust each other. Each felt that it was a lesser evil to lose land to the Franks than to their rival Muslim princes. Like in Sicily or Al-Andalus before them, they sought help from the Christians in fighting their internal wars. What the Muslims did have on their side was numerical superiority. Many of the Crusaders returned to Europe, 
Gaining reinforcements became increasingly difficult due to a more unified Seljuk front in Anatolia. The Crusaders relied instead on reinforcements by sea as they held most of the coastal cities. Another crucial tactic of the Crusaders to counter their lesser numbers was to build large castles to keep themselves fortified against their enemies. Although the leaders were unwilling to act, the general Muslim Umar and some of its learned men showed more urgency. Of them was the Grand Qadi of Damascus, Abu Sa'd al-Harawi, who traveled for three weeks under the scorching sun to Baghdad, and there he made a powerful call for jihad. How dare you slumber in the shade of a complacent safety, leading lives as frivolous as garden flowers, while our brothers in Syria have no dwelling place save the saddles of camels and the bellies of vultures. Blood has been spilled, beautiful young girls have been shamed, and must now hide their sweet faces in their hands. Shall the valorous Arabs resign themselves to insult, and the valiant Persians accept dishonor? Never have the Muslims been so humiliated. Never have their lands been so savagely devastated. There were tears, but nothing more. The so-called Khalifa of the Muslims at the time ordered an inquiry into the matter, which nothing came out of. Perhaps that is why common folk used to say at one stage that the Byzantine emperor was a better Muslim than the Khalifa. At least he called upon the Muslims to unite and drive the Frange out of their lands. There was also al-Sulami of the Umayyad Mosque of Damascus. He called the Muslims to return to their religion. He argued that the losses of the Muslim nation were punishment for neglecting their religious duties and abandoning jihad. Al-Sulami traced this decline to the Khalifas, who neglected their duties of at least conducting one offensive jihad per year. And then there was Ibn Kashab, a Shiite Qadi from Aleppo, who gathered the masses and also sent a delegation to Baghdad. He rallied the people to prevent the cross to be placed on the main mosque, which Ridwan had agreed to do for the crusaders. After the death of Ridwan, he was instrumental in supporting Aleppan leaders, capable of taking on the crusaders. In fact, for a long time, Aleppo was the main source of resistance to the crusaders. But just as the campaign for jihad began to gather momentum, an old enemy reared its head from within the Muslim Ummah. This enemy was devilishly cunning in its plots, brazen in its attacks, and yet it remained unseen like shadows on a moonless night. This was the deadly Shiite sect known as the Assassins. Al-Harawi, Ibn Hashab, and other great generals who were trying to rekindle the flame of Iman and Jihad fell to their daggers. They struck at Muslim figures at crucial times, throwing the Ummah into chaos. These masters of disguise would appear as old men, or Sufis, or merchants, giving the impression of feebleness and vulnerability while moving freely in Muslim towns surveilling the habits of their intended victim. Although they plotted and planned in secret, the execution was almost always in public, before the largest possible crowd for maximum impact. Their favorite site was a mosque after Friday prayers. As their prey would pass by, they would pounce, stabbing their quarry in the head or heart. 
It was this same sect that cast its spellbinding influence over Ridwan. Their attempts at undermining Sunni Islam were terrifyingly effective. The Muslim Umar was desolate, and morale was extremely low. As a Muslim author put it, the Franks were spread far and wide. Their troops were numerous, and their hands extended as if to seize all of Islam. Day after day, their raids followed one another. Through these, they did the Muslims much mischief, smiting them with desolation and ruin. In their misery, men longed for death. In its bleakest moment, Allah sent the Ummah of Muhammad, peace be upon him, new leaders that would change the course of events in the Holy Lands. That is it for today. Please remember to leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to remember to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Please join our Islamic Audio Bytes community on Instagram and Twitter and follow me on Facebook as well. Do check out our website at islamicaudiobytes.com and if you would like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb007 at gmail.com. Hope your day is full of goodness. Aslamu alaikum.